Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, unlocking the power of Thinkorswim, the award-winning trading platforms loaded with features that let you dive deeper into the market. Visualize your trades in a new light on Thinkorswim Desktop with robust charting and analysis tools, all while you uncover new opportunities with up-to-the-minute market news and insights. Thinkorswim is available on desktop, web, and mobile to meet you where you are. It's built by the trading obsessed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This is Bloomberg Intelligence. We're really getting into now the streaming arms race. This is looking at that and saying we can really build a nice niche for ourselves. In-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. The dollar is the dominant concept in the planet. I think the acquisition is a natural progression of what Microsoft can do with this technology going forward. Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. On today's Bloomberg Intelligence show, we are going to dig inside the big business stories impacting Wall Street and the global markets. Each and every week, we provide in-depth research and data on some of the 2,000 companies and 130 industries our analysts cover worldwide. Okay, today we're going to discuss Big Pharma's focus on obesity in 2024. Plus, we look ahead to credit quality challenges for Canadian banks. But first, the FTSE 100 is on track for a third year of relatively static outlook. For more on what's in store for next year, we're joined now by Bloomberg Intelligence Director of Research and European strategist Tim Craighead. Tim, does the FTSE 100 stand a chance about performing at all? If I had to give a one-word answer, Alex, the answer is no. <laughs> I figured. I, I kind of led you to that, but okay. <laughs> Why? So I think that the crux of the issue goes to what's at the heart of the FTSE 100. It's an index that has big global brands that you know, range across consumer staples and pharmaceuticals and things along those lines. It's got a lot of energy and a lot of metals and mining, and it's got a big group of financials. And so if you take all those together, the pound is now rising because the dollar is starting to weaken with the idea of a Fed pivot. We've got commodity prices that are still under pressure, which has an impact on energy and metals and mining earnings. And uh, we've got interest rates to the degree that they do indeed start to roll over. That's a problem for net interest margins for financials. And so these big drivers for the FTSE have an issue. Now, is there a valuation call to be made there, Tim? Because I know the, the UK does There's always a, a valuation call always. with the UK. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. Well, look, at, at, at about 12 times forward earnings, certainly it looks like it is depressed relative to most other major markets. But fond of saying it, it's really valued for a reason. Generally speaking, banks tend to trade at lower multiples. Uh, you've got the energy and materials, metals and mining, and it, you know how these work. They look like they're very cheap on earnings when earnings are very high because everybody thinks that it's not sustainable. And the only time you get revaluation in the commodity group is when you have an earnings downdraft in a recession and the earnings disappear so the multiples go higher. So right now we're closer to peak earnings than trough earnings, so we have low valuations. All in all, you don't have the you don't have the items that are driving US multiples and you have all of the 
old items that um, are somewhat problematic. So it's depressed for a reason. Let's take, um, say, small caps and, and, and mid-cap stocks for a second, because the small cap stock index here in the U.S. has had a huge run, right? If you get Fed cuts, that's going to wind up be better for the leverage plays, for the small caps. If you get BOE cuts, and I realize it's an if, could the same thing be said of those in the U.K.? Yeah, it's really interesting, Alex. Uh, the, the answer there is yes. And it, it is intriguing because the smaller cap companies tend to be more domestically oriented, And if you've got a stronger pound, that's good for cost because you're buying things into the British economy that you make into stuff from a supply perspective. And if the BOE does pivot, and and we think that they will over time, then you've got that sort of wind that comes to the back of the domestic economy as well. So all told, whether it's domestic-oriented or smaller-cap-oriented, they sort of fold into a segment of the British market that is intriguing if you get into that recovery story, which is probably a second-half 24 and into 25 for uh, for the UK. And so I do think that is an area that we look at into next year as opposed to the broader FTSE 100. How about the FTSE versus Europe in general? Yeah, I tell you what, Paul, that's really interesting, especially given this rally that we've seen since late October. Uh, You've got markets like Sweden that tend to be sort of the turbocharged high beta version of the rest of Europe that's up 16% since the end of October versus, say, the FTSE up 4%. And, you know, the, the item with the rest of Europe is we are looking at sort of high single-digit uh, earnings growth expectations. That's a little less than what you all are, are showing from a consensus perspective for the U.S. Valuations are lower here. The one issue that we've got some concern about is, number one, I should say two issues. Number one, going into the earnings reporting period, we've been seeing negative revisions going into 3Q and 4Q earnings, and we think that there's probably more risk than reward near term on that front. And China is a really big deal for the European market. So over 450 billion euros in revenue coming from a big group of companies here. And that's a big first half negative comparison. Mm -hmm. The second half story to be excited about, but you got to get there first. We got to get there first. All right. Thanks a lot. Really appreciate it, Tim. Bloomberg Intelligence Director of Research and European Strategist, Tim Craighead. Let's turn now to North America, where REITs operating in most property sectors are on track for slower net operating income growth in 2024. For more on this, we're joined by Bloomberg Intelligence Retail, REIT, and Consumer Hardlines Analyst, Lindsay Dutch. So, Lindsay, let's just lay the groundwork here. How do REITs perform in an environment where rate rates are likely going down? You know, REITs um, should typically have a positive reaction to lower rates. It makes their dividend yields more attractive. Um, and I think we see some good fundamentals also for some of the property sectors, including retail REITs and even warehouse owners heading into next year, which should also be good when we think about performance. Really? I thought the whole thing was, hey, the consumer is going to slow. 
Yes. So if we think about retail, yeah, the interesting thing in that industry right now is even though the consumer has been challenged this year, we've seen a pullback since the end of last year, really, um, the store openings have really exceeded closings so far this year. And just tenant defaults or uncollectible rent have really proved better than expected. So demand is really quite solid heading into 24 for retail real estate in general, and especially when you think about off the mall. You know, I think about the REIT space and I think just office buildings, but it's so much more than that. So is office buildings, though, that's still taboo? Yeah, so the office sector is still, um, you know, one of the most challenged going into 24 and, and maybe a little bit longer term. Like retail, I think there is a strong flight to quality. So over the longer term, um, probably not in 24, but going out a little bit further, you know, we see, you know, strength in demand and leasing continuing for the highest quality buildings, those A office assets, but same thing in the retail space when you think about malls, they're still challenged, but the occupancy at those higher quality locations is going to remain solid, um, and we still see demand from different types of tenants when you look at the best quality assets. The lower quality mm-hmm. assets could continue to face challenges, you know, higher vacancy rates, and eventually some of those buildings may need to be repurposed into something else. It hasn't been all doom and gloom this year for REITs, though, before we get into next year. Like, what what's done really well And you expect that to continue next year, or is the pendulum going to shift and kind of the worst performers get picked up? One sector that's kind of been interesting, if you think about warehousing, you know, warehouse has had tremendous demand, very high growth compared to other sectors for the past several years. We saw some red flags about that um, this year and some underperformance from that sector. But we think that, you know, going into 24, you know, they can still produce above average growth, even though rental growth growth is kind of going in the wrong direction. We're seeing some pockets of elevated supply versus demand. So that's kind of been a switch um, for that type of sector. If you think about stock performance, though, you know, office REITs actually do pretty well at some points this year when a lot of people started to recognize that flight to quality and those higher quality portfolios that they will survive and they will they can outperform in the longer term. So when we think about, you know, the stock performance, we have some seen some of that sector reversal, some of the underperformers outperforming and vice versa. And you see that in the valuations, right? Industrials, the valuations are the highest. Your industrial REITs and the office are the lowest. So the market definitely makes a difference there. Exactly. So what's the outlook here for just, um, I I guess, one of the issues has been um, apartment REITs, that they're building so many apartments these days because uh, nobody's moving out of their houses. How How do you think about that? Yeah, so apartments um, is very similar to warehousing in terms of the rent growth cycle coming out of COVID. You know, they had gotten, you know, an acceleration in in rent growth um, and a pickup in demand coming out of the pandemic, sort of. Um, And then 
that rent growth is really starting to slow now again. So vacancy, uh, vacancy is still pretty low. Occupancy is strong. Rent is still growing, but it's sort of coming downward, um, similar to the, the warehouse sector. So in terms of fundamentals, apartment and industrial, maybe some of the strongest sectors, but the, the direction of their growth is sort of slowing a little bit compared to others. All right, Lindsay, thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. Lindsay Dutch, Bloomberg Intelligence Retail, REIT, and Consumer Hardlines Analyst. Coming up on the program, we'll stay in North America and take a look at how telecoms are entering the new year. You are listening to Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. You can access Bloomberg Intelligence through BI Go on the terminal. I'm Alex Steele. And I'm Paul Sweeney. And this is Bloomberg. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, giving you even more specialized support than ever before. Like access to the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders ready to tackle anything from the most complex trading questions to a simple strategy gut check. Need assistance? No problem. Get 24-7 professional answers and live help and access support by phone, email, and in-platform chat. That's how Schwab is here for you, to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us Saturdays at noon Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. As telecoms enter 2024, several factors may limit their revenue growth, including stiff competition from cable and slowing net subscriber additions. For more, we're joined by Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Telecoms Analyst John Butler. So, John, I want to go to the, the competition angle first. Just give us an update on where big telecom and big cable, how they're competing in the marketplace these days. Yeah, so if you look at the cable operators, they've done a really good job over the past couple of years of escalating brand awareness. So they're really, you know, a few years ago, no one had really heard about some of the cable brands out there like Spectrum Cable, for example. But over the past couple of years, their execution has gotten much better. And so now in any given quarter, they're accounting for up to a third of wireless net additions. And, and it's really sort of coming out of the height of the telecoms. Um, when you think about how mature the industry is, every subscriber really counts. And so cable is starting to uh, really leave a mark, if you will. Really? I always thought it was going to be the other way around. Like, t- like tele- T-Mobile was going to sell me a cable subscription thing, Wi-Fi. 
So they dabbled in cable for a short while there, Alex, and it just didn't work well for them. And so, um, at least in the case of T-Mobile, they ended up backing away from that. Uh, Verizon does offer Fios, and they do have a video product, but um, it's really not a big part of the business. How about the dividends for these telecom names, John? I know uh, that's a big part of the investment story. Verizon has been very steady in terms of paying their dividend and growing it. I think the concern in the industry has really centered on AT&T and its heavy debt load yeah. and ability to generate ample free enough free cash flow to cover that dividend. I think we're at a point now we're out of the, we're we're out of the woods on that. I think the concern there is fading and um so at least when it comes to dividends that concern, I think, is going to be mostly confined to 23 and and prior to that. So for 2024, then, is this like a pro-cable provider kind of thing and telecoms have less juice? Like, how are you kind of seeing it shake out? No, we actually didn't talk about broadband yet. So the one area where the telcos are really doing a great job is in broadband. Uh, If you look across the broadband industry, cable has gone from even a couple of years ago, getting millions of net new subscribers every year now to literally just a couple of hundred thousand um, estimated for next year versus telco now. I think uh, if you look at fixed wireless access services alone, which is sort of wireless broadband, if you will. Um, I think T-Mobile and Verizon together are going to account for around 4 million net subscribers. And AT&T is successfully pushing a fiber broadband strategy. So it's really taking all the share from cable on the net news subscriber side. Um, And cable really, I don't cover cable, but I know they're in a little bit of trouble there in the broadband market because of that trend. So you put it all together, you know, you think about the services revenue for these big telecom companies, whether it's wireless or or 5G. What's the growth rate these days? So... It's a mature rate of growth, and it happened pretty quickly, Paul. If you look back during the pandemic, um, subscriber growth was incredibly strong. Price, uh, pricing was very stable. There was very little promotion, and service revenue was growing above 6%. And I say that to put it in perspective to where we are today. I think for the year this year in 23, service revenue is going to grow around 3.6%. As we move into 24, our expectation is for service revenue to be around 3.3%. So it's decelerating. It's it's back down to a level where, you know, as, as the head of Verizon says, I always aim to be a little bit above GDP. And I think that's right about where it's going to be in coming years as we now are navigating a mature market in mm-hmm. telecom. So if it's mature... Like, where does the upside come from? Is it going to be 5G upgrades? Like, it, it, it seems like that's where everyone's focused on to some extent. And I just wonder when the peak of that hits. Yes. So that's a good point. I'd go back to broadband as a major growth factor for 24. So I think all three telecoms, again, are executing very well in broadband. That's a very profitable business as well. So... They're going to source some growth there. 
They're going to source some growth from net new additions. You always get growth in uh, connections in any given year because a lot of people are now connecting up their PCs or watches to 5G, and so you get some natural growth there. Um, And I think there's a little bit of pricing power left in the market. So we saw Verizon, for example, and AT&T both take up prices a little bit last year on some older plans. And I think there's some room left there. So in terms of year in and year out, it's tweaking around the edges with pricing and with net subscriber growth on the wireless side and leaning hard into broadband for growth. And then, of course, by the end of the decade, we'll be talking about the upgrade to 6G. All right, but let's go back to 5G, because that was certainly, for a number of years, kind of the hype around this cable telecom space here. Give us a little bit of sense of how that has played out for the industry and for investors. I would say, Paul, not well. Like, one thing we feature in our outlook is that 5G really didn't live up to the hype, and I have to say, I was skeptical at the time. I thought the industry was making a mistake hyping it so heavily. And it's not that 5G doesn't hold great promise. It's very different in many ways from prior generational upgrades in wireless without getting into detail there. But I think it's promised to be game-changing and world-changing um, for the industry was on the enterprise side, so for business services and less so for consumer services. So if you wind the clock back 10 years, 4G really offered a huge change for consumers, and it became immediately apparent when speeds picked up and you were able to stream video onto your smartphone. 5G offers higher speeds, but it's not a remarkable change from what we have now with 4G. Mm-hmm. I think the remarkable change, again, comes in the B2B space, the the enterprise applications. And because of the choppy economy and because of the way technology adoption tends to work, it has not yeah. come screaming out of the gates. You know, it's been slow to emerge. But it is emerging, and I think if you fast forward three to five years, we're going to see a very different marketplace thanks to uh, 5G. Hey, John, before we let you go, any idea what Charlie, Ergen, and Dish are going to do with that Spectrum? I have no idea. (laughs) I don't either. I think he continues to remain committed to building out a 5G network. I think ultimately he's going to have to lease out some Spectrum uh, or even sell it. I think his chances of really making it in wireless are, are in question right now as they struggle to gain access to capital to complete the build-out. Paul, yeah. how, how different, by the way, is the TMT world now from when you were oh, a banker? Is it like yeah, totally different? There's no growth. That's the simple thing. There's, there's little to no growth where... You know, years ago, the industry was still growing, adding subscribers, adding you know pricing, all that kind of stuff. So, um, so the growth rate has definitely changed, and that's kind of what investors have come to you know I guess expect and reflected in, in the valuations. Hey, John, thanks so much for joining us, uh, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Telecoms Analyst John Butler. Coming up on the program, three keys for Canadian banks in 2024. You're listening to Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. You can access Bloomberg Intelligence via BIGO on the terminal. I'm Paul Sweeney. And I'm Alex Steele. And this is Bloomberg. 
Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, bringing you an expanding library of education with even more ways to sharpen your trading skills. Access new online courses, insightful webcasts, articles, engaging videos, and more, all curated just for traders. Plus, guided learning paths with content designed to fit your unique interests. No sifting to find exactly what you need so you can spend your time learning to trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch the program Saturdays at noon Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. So Canadian banks like TD and RBC are gearing up for economic and credit quality challenges in 2024. For more, we're joined now by Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Industry Analyst Paul Goldberg. All right, Paul. What are the economic and credit quality challenges we're looking at here? Hi, Alex. The economy is slowing down in both U.S. and Canada. So Canada is doing a little bit worse than the U.S. at the moment. So things are getting tougher the, in terms of growth, in terms of, as you mentioned, credit quality. So things are getting tougher. And also, there is a mortgage transfer mechanism in Canada, which is a little bit different than the U.S., which makes it a little bit faster and a little bit more challenging for Canada than the U.S. consumers. All right. So if interest rates are coming down, net interest margin gets impacted. Talk to us about how that dynamic works for these Canadian banks. So it's a little bit of an interesting point at the moment because they are relatively neutrally positioned for the rates to go up or down. In fact, over the last few quarters, they were challenged by higher funding costs, which were actually hurting the margins. But that also depends on sort of the demand side, like the margin side on the rate side is one thing, but the demand side is the other. And you mentioned that consumers would be a bit harder hit than the U.S. Well, why is that? Because of the mortgages, the way the mortgages are set up in the U.S., you typically go out and get a fixed 30-year mortgage. In Canada, you get a 25-year mortgage, but that mortgage resets every five years. So Wait, what? Higher, Wait yep. you get 25 the, years and it resets? Yep. How does that, how's that fair? Actually, most of the world works in a similar way. So you, you get a periodic resets to the current interest rate environment, and that impacts the consumers essentially much faster than it would in the U.S., uh, so especially some of the banks mentioned that some of the variable rate product is kind of an indicator to everything coming to. The consumer spending in other areas like cards and all other consumer borrowing is coming down much faster as these 
payments for the consumers are getting much higher than mortgages. The just spending power gets down a lot. What's the credit quality uh, situation up in Canada these days, and what's the outlook for 24? The credit quality is fairly decent at the moment in terms of where we were and where we're going. So we kind of at around the pre-pandemic levels. So more, we're back to normal when it was extremely benign, but it's deteriorating with some extent a little bit faster than in the U.S. So in terms of the bank's guidance and in terms of the expectations, the provisioning for bad credit, it should be about 30% higher on average than it was in 23. So if the transmission of monetary policy is faster in Canada than, say, the U.S., in particular because the mortgage market, like you just said. Does that mean that the Bank of Canada can cut faster and harder than the Fed can? It's a possibility. So there, there's, there are several variables. So the Bank of Canada, in terms of the commentary, they said that they're probably done raising rates. They said that they probably would consider cutting rates. But then they came back about a week later and warned the market that they're not really in a rush to cut rates. So there are several rate cuts that are built in by the economists into the forecast, but it's still a lot of uncertainty. What the difference is, the bulk of the mortgages, about a quarter of the existing outstanding, will be renewing in 25, and another third in 26. So those are the two most riskiest years, which kind of gives Bank of Canada some leeway throughout the 24 to adjust before those two worst years. Talk to us about the valuation of this group here. Am I, where are we at kind of in a cycle and relative to history? Uh, relative to history, we're probably closer to a lower end in terms of the multiples, in terms of like PE or price to book multiples, um, So which kind of reflects a more challenging environment, higher challenges to the payouts. They, most of them are not planning on buybacks and so on. So a lot of that risk is sort of priced in. So they essentially, if you look at what they're saying, they, they set up for a soft lending. The risk is if we do get a lending that's harder than the soft lending. Right. Well, that central bank and every other central bank and economy for 2024. Um, specifically, what banks look the best uh, going into next year? The banks that are more diversified, a bit more away from mortgages, probably looks a little bit look a little bit best set up for next year. So RBC, very good diversification. Uh, Bank of Montreal. So the risk there is predominantly on the commercial side. So if commercial loans hold up reasonably okay, they're going to do better. Plus they bought Bank of the West earlier in fiscal 23, and they do have a lot of lev- levers on the cost side. So they ex- increase their synergy expectations by about 20% just on the recent earnings call. So they'll have a bit more savings. You mentioned commercial real estate. So just real quick, what's the the risk there for the Canadian banks? There is some risk. Uh, Interestingly enough, most of their risk on the commercial side is in the U.S. Commercial loans, commercial real estate loans in Canada don't have a recourse, unlike the U.S. loans. Canadian loans do, so it's much harder to discharge yourself out of the loan by just handing over the keys. (laughs) Uh, in, so most of the losses, interestingly enough, we've seen, and most of the provisioning for losses we've seen the, done by the Canadian banks are in the U.S. versus Canada. So it holds up a little bit better, but still, they're facing the same challenges. Hey, Paul, thanks a lot. We super appreciate it. Paul Goldberg, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Industry Analyst. Let's turn now to Big Pharma, where obesity drugs and antitrust regulation will remain in focus well into the new year.
year. Bloomberg Intelligence senior pharmaceuticals analyst John Murphy joins us now. John, let's just start with the obesity drug situation. Can can 2024 top what we saw in 2023? Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. So, I mean, yeah, 23, if that was the year of obesity, it looks like um, 24 is probably going to be, be a little bit similar. Uh, you know, I guess, I guess there was a couple of things we saw in 2023. Um, firstly, if you're in the obesity area, your share price went up, um, to be very simplistic about it. So the two large caps that are big in the obesity space, Lilly and Novo, saw very, very large share price gains. And, and probably I can't remember seeing such a divergent in share price performance over the past 20 years or, or, or more. They were all up. Um, every other stock apart from uh, Novartis amongst the large caps was, was actually down. But what we saw in 23 was clearly we saw some new data sets come through. We, we saw initially Wagovi from Novo driving the market. And now we're seeing Lily Zepbound um, just being rolled out uh, as we speak. So as we go into 2024, the focus is going to be, can we see these two products being rolled out more broadly? But also, really importantly, can we see increased supply? Because clearly demand is far exceeding supply. And it's when we start to see that being properly met, maybe some of the crazy numbers out there in the market, crazy in, in largeness perspective, might actually begin to get met. John, should we look for other companies to kind of try to get in on this market? Or did the two big ones you mentioned, they kind of have it locked up? Firstly, I think in, in terms of having it locked up, I mean, you, you can look at, the, look at the numbers out there. And I think the latest numbers say something like 40% of the U.S. population is uh, is obese. So hey. clearly there's, a, there's an absolutely enormous market there. And I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm proud I'm of giving it, yeah. the pun. There clearly is space for many others to play in the space. But what you have to have is you have to have very active products. And we've seen um, some data from additional products. And at the moment... They, they really haven't been as expected. Pfizer's a great example here. They had a once daily that, that we saw data from earlier this year. That didn't make it. And they had a twice daily, and, and that data looks okay, but they're saying, listen, twice, twice daily is not going to be enough. We need a once daily in order to be competitive here. So it's a wait and see in some cases. For the moment, anyway, it looks like Lilly and uh, Novo are set to... Uh, set to dominate. When you talk about what to tackle, it's not just obesity, right? Is 2024 going to be the year where we see just how explosive these kind of drugs can be in terms of all the illnesses they can really target? Yeah, so, so that's what's really amazing, I think, about this class of products. Um, I think we, we, we started to see this um, a number of years ago when we, we looked maybe initially at the, at the statins and we saw that they had benefits above and beyond just cholesterol lowering. And we're starting to, to, to see the, the same here. These GLP-1 products, the benefits they're having, it's not solely down to weight loss. They clearly have an additional cardiovascular benefits. We've seen papers appear in the literature almost on a daily basis showing that they have um, anti-inflammatory benefits as well. You mentioned cancer. There's certainly an indication that there was some sort of benefit there. Patients taking them long-term in terms of reducing incidence of colorectal cancer. I think there's going to be a ton of research that's going to be going on in the next few years to see just how widespread these products can be used. And they themselves, while they, while they themselves might not be used for that indication, nevertheless, it'll open many, many more fruitful avenues for products similar to them, perhaps, to be used for additional indications. John, you highlight some uh, headwinds for this industry. Um, a more active approach from antitrust authorities combined with Inflation Reduction Act price cuts. Um, those are some issues here. Break, break them down for us. Yeah, sure. So, so, so two things there. Let me, let me, let me hit first on the 
the issue with regard to antitrust, and this is a potential concern because it, it may actually end up doing what it didn't intend doing in the first place, and it might make biotech, for example, a, a less attractive area to invest in. So what we're seeing here is that the FTC appears to be really pursuing a fundamental rewrite of its pharma M&A playbook. What I mean by that is, in the past, it used to look at two portfolios and used to say, OK, if there's an overlap, that's anti-competitive. You need to get rid of part of that portfolio. You need to divest or you need to, you need to out-license. What we're seeing now is they're looking at things like innovation harm. They're looking at things like portfolio effects. And it's somewhat more intangible. It's tougher to, to define. And what they're doing is they're litigating to block deals. Now, if you're a big farmer, you think, okay, that's fine. If our deal's okay, Amgen and Horizon or, or Pfizer and Seagen, we'll go into that sort of litigation. We don't mind. We, we're certain it will carry on. But Sanofi, for example, pulled out of an earlier stage deal with May Therapeutics a couple of weeks ago because they didn't want to be involved in that long and costly litigation. The reason that's important for biotech is if you're a biotech company or a biotech investor, in many cases your light at the end of the tunnel, your holy grail, is to get taken out. And if, you're, if it's going to be more difficult for these sort of deals to come through, perhaps biotech as a result is going to end up becoming less attractive for, for investors. Hmm. So antitrust, definitely a potential hurdle to M&A. Though a lot of these guys, I'm just looking at Pfizer, for example, you know, the pipeline thing is a real problem. So, I mean, at some point... Some of these big guys are going to have to buy the smaller guys, if anything, just to get into the obesity market. So isn't isn't M&A something that the, the FTC is going to have to deal with? Yeah, no, I'm, look, they, they are dealing with it. They are looking with it, looking at it. But um, I think the, the line they're pursuing just appears to be very, very different to one that they've, they've done in the past. Hmm. And so drug companies getting involved in this are obviously, or, or they're going to have to be prepared to probably spend a little bit more in order to get deals through. They're going to have to be a little bit more patient than, than they were in the past. And again, from a biotech perspective, yeah, you know, it might be a little bit more difficult to, to, to get a deal to go through. So on the drug prices, pressure? Yeah, well, I guess it's present election time coming up, right? So drug pricing must be at or close to the top <laughs> of the agenda. It certainly has been every, every time we've had an election for the last 20 or so years. Um, this time it's a continuation of the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, that's been rapidly enacted. I think the industry is still trying to work through some of the implications. The main focus, though, is the reduction of um, price on, on 10 drugs from 2026, the price cut to 25% or more. That's important because the Congressional Budget Office believes this can reduce spending on drugs by $3.7 billion in 2026 and maybe $100 billion over 10 years. It's important for pharma because what they're seeing is before their drugs even go off patent, for Medicare beneficiaries anyway, they're seeing, this, they're seeing a, a major cut to their pricing. So that's something they've got to think about when they're planning development of products and what comes through. Now, what they're doing is they're filing multiple legal challenges to the IRA, but we don't believe, or at least our litigation team doesn't believe these are going to succeed. We're probably going to see a, a lot, lot more in terms of sabre-rattling, we think, from, from political parties as the election nears, talking about things like seizing drug patents or other ways of, of cutting prices. We don't think any of these are going to come through. The Inflation Reduction Act is going to really what's going to be the, the, the key focus of drug pricing in the near term, but certainly a headwind for pharma.
Hey, John, thanks a lot. We really appreciate it. John Murphy, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Pharmaceuticals Analyst. That's this week's edition of Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. And remember, you can access Bloomberg Intelligence through BI Go on the Terminal. I'm Alex Steele. And I'm Paul Sweeney. Stay with us. Today's top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.